in the presence of our Redeemer. Amen? Amen. Man, I want to welcome all of you who are here today with us in the building, and welcome to those of you who have chosen to join us online today. I'm glad that you are with us here to worship today. We're continuing our study in the book of Ruth, and we're moving through that book. Next week, we actually hit the climactic text in the book of Ruth, and it's appropriate the Sunday before Christmas that we'll be talking about the birth of a very special child. Before we begin today, let's share in our monthly memory verse. It's from the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Ruth 4, 14. There is much left to be resolved in our text as we left it off last week. Chapter 3 of Ruth leaves us with a need for resolution. There are questions in the text that have been left unanswered. Will Naomi have her redeemer? Who will ultimately step forth to be the husband of this worthy woman, Ruth? How will Boaz address and navigate and deal with the legal obstacles and challenges that stood in his way of the redemption of Naomi? And in a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, would justice be done? Could the law still work as it was meant to work for the widow and for the immigrant? The contrast of Ruth chapter 4 with the previous chapters of Ruth are stark. Chapter 2 in the book of Ruth highlights the divine providence as God draws Naomi and Ruth towards Bethlehem and moves Ruth into the fields of Boaz. Chapter 4 now highlights human agency. There are two men in the presence of many witnesses who have a significant decision To make. In chapter 4, there is a public and legally binding decision that contrasts the private and quiet encounters that we read of last week in Ruth chapter 3. The events of chapter 3, as you think about them and call them to mind, they take place in the dark of night and early morning, secretly, behind the curtains. And as we open chapter 4, it's daytime. And the legal proceedings that are taking place are going to take place in the eye of the public. And once again, there's a gigantic question that hovers over this entire book of Ruth. And the question is this, how does God redeem his covenant people? In the first part of chapter 4, the part we are opening together today, we are going to see the loving kindness and mercy of God expressed through the actions of Boaz. This while also witnessing how God's law, when applied justly and rightly, accomplishes exactly what he intends for it to accomplish. The protection, provision, and preservation of his people. We are in Ruth chapter 4 today. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there. Ruth chapter 4. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Ruth chapter 4, 1 to 12. Let's pray. 
Father, we open your word today and we ask that you move through its words. That you use it to transform us, to fix us and fit us for the world that you have called us to and placed us in. That we would learn from the example of Boaz, that we would be encouraged by the hope and the presence of a redeemer. And that we might be motivated to demonstrate the same attitudes and actions that we find within these words. Lord, we know that you are working even now through your words as your spirit guides and directs. Help us to grow in our love and our knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter 4, 1 to 12. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of who Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took Ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malan. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malan. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Morning has come in Bethlehem. 
And as we let off at the end of chapter 3, we remembered that Boaz had said that he would not rest until this matter was settled. Ruth's intentions that she had communicated in verse 9 of chapter 3 were clear. She desired Boaz, that he might be her husband. And so Boaz moves to the city gates. And in Israel, it was the city gates where official, judicial, and administrative business would take place. The city gates were a place for the administration of justice. Take a look at the picture before you today. It's an image of of what some uh, believe what a city gate would have looked like. And you'll notice in the appearance, it's very similar to the way we still set up some of our classrooms and meeting rooms today. In fact, when our elders meet or when other committees meet, maybe that you've been a part of, you'll notice the structure of the tables set up may be very similar. And there's a purpose. This is a good design and a good way to sit in order to deal with matters of administration. And so Boaz must have known in his day-to-day walkings and going about towns that this was a place, a location that the nearest redeemer to Naomi would pass by. And he sits down there. The text says he goes and he sits. And just like the author used the phrase, and behold, you remember last week he used that phrase to indicate us about the reality of Ruth at the foot of Boaz's bed. Just as he used it in chapter 3, he uses it again here to alert us to the presence of the nearest redeemer. And when we see that phrase, and behold, it's a phrase that reminds us of the providence and the sovereignty Of God. God is in control in the affairs of his people. And it's interesting, there is no name for this nearest redeemer given in the text. It's not there. The writer is very intentional to leave it out. In fact, in the course of Ruth's narrative, we will never know the name of this nearest redeemer. The term that's used in verse 1 of the ESV is the word friend you see in your text. But again, the ESV is translating the intent of this word rather than the true meaning of the word. If we were talking to one another today in the same words, we might say, Hey, big guy, come over here. You ever hear anybody talk like that? Hey, Mr. Such and Such, Mr. So and So, Mr. Big Shot. It's a, it's a term of endearment. But he's not using the man's name. He's using kind of slang to draw him in, to call him over. And it's evident from our text that Boaz was a man who carried a good bit of clout in his community, isn't it? Let's look at the first few verses here of chapter 4. At Boaz's command, here this redeemer turns aside from wherever he was going, and he changes his plans and He sits down just as Boaz instructs. Boaz's intention here, friends, is to deal with this matter correctly. So the actions that he takes in verse 2 come as no surprise, are they? In order to deal with this matter correctly and properly, according to the law of the land, witnesses needed to be present. So look at verse 2. He took ten men, the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. 
and they sat down. Further evidence that Boaz's words carried some weight among his people. This was not a matter that had been posted. It wasn't on their docket. It wasn't on their agenda as a matter that needed to be resolved for this day. They didn't have time to prepare themselves for it. We can be sure that these men had other matters at hand, but at the word of Boaz, they lay aside their daily duties, and there's now an assembly at the city gate. And we see Boaz's character here. This is very much juxtaposed to what we see in the book of Judges. Boaz very easily could have left this a private matter. In fact, coming out of the book of Judges and reading the testimony of all of the men and how they behaved in the book of Judges, we may anticipate that that's exactly what Boaz is going to do. Private relationship, a private transfer of land. Ruth could be his wife, concubine. Privately, he could care for Naomi as she aged. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But friends, what have we learned about Boaz in this narrative? Boaz was different. He was set apart. Boaz understands that what is at stake here are decisions that are related to not just Naomi and Ruth, but to the broader health and well-being of the community that God has placed him in. And to do this the right way, to do this the way that God had intended, this could not remain a private matter. That which was private in chapter 3 needed to become public now in chapter 4. Were Boaz to keep these decisions private, they would have had very public implications. The law demanded that these transactions and resolutions were performed in public. And this was to protect those who were most vulnerable from being taken advantage of. And sometimes, friends, as I reflect on the character of Boaz, I'm reminded that matters that I often might deem as personal or private may not often be as private and as personal as I would like them to be. And just as Boaz was called into the community of Israel as an Israelite, so too are we as believers called into a community of believers that we call the church. And just as Israel was planted among the nations as salt and light, so too are we planted in our communities and called to be salt and light, never knowing in our day-to-day dealings as we're motivated by love, how Jesus might be using us to draw someone else unto himself. You know, we, we live in a society, I've, I've been raised, most of you have been raised in a society where we place a very high value on words such as independence and personal responsibility. These are good and healthy ideals when we understand them and apply them within a framework of biblical thinking. Absolutely. But sometimes we focus so much on those ideals that we risk overlooking other qualities and equally biblical concepts such as interdependence and shared community. 
As part of our independent kind of, we live in this, I was raised in a home, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard, blue collar. Sometimes we have a hard time relating to and applying passages that describe the interdependence and the communal functioning that the church is supposed to be operating with. Acts chapter 4 lays, us, lays out for us an example of how this looks. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. And we might look at Naomi and Boaz and Ruth's situations and say this is a private matter. This is a private relationship. This is a private sale or transfer of land. But Boaz understands that in order to demonstrate his love of God in this situation, his love of Ruth, his love of community, that he must pursue the resolution of this matter in light with the presence of the elders according to the law and his community. A law that had been given by God. In love. And, and friends, I, I'm reminded that, that the, the decisions that I make, the personal decisions that I make, while they may appear private, they sometimes, oftentimes, regularly have an impact on the communities and the places in which I live. We talked about this a little bit last week. We explored that the world might tell us to love whoever we want, however we want. Yet we know that God's ways are better. We said that last week. There's a pattern to love and, and it's communicated and demonstrated in the scriptures. But this week we come up against a popular phrase in our culture that tells us just do whatever you want as long as it's not hurting anybody else. Were Boaz to keep this matter private, would it have been physically harming anyone else? Perhaps some of us would say it wouldn't have appeared to. But he knew that that was not the right way. That was not what God would have desired. And the problem, friends, is for myself, perhaps for some of us, we often fail to see how behaviors that we deem to be isolated and private often have public consequences. I once heard a pastor say this, quote, there is no such thing as a secret sin, end quote. Our private sins have public consequences. Our private decisions that may or may not be related to sin or may, or may not even be sin have public consequences. Consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. What might appear as a private or isolated decision from the priest and the Levite to callously pass by this man who lay near death on the side of the street was not a private decision. Jesus did not allow them to hold that perspective. On the other hand, the decision of the Good Samaritan necessarily involved the public, the community, and the care and the well-being of the man who was rescued. And perhaps we would move it into the context of our day-to-day -day lives. 
Decisions related to how I parent and disciple my children don't just have an impact on my home and my family, but it has a broader impact on the community where I live and where I function. How we use resources that God gives us matters, and it might impact our ability to love, live, and lead serving as a church in the broader community that God has planted us in. Boaz is in this text talking very openly in public about the future care and livelihood of two very private individuals. Because Naomi and Ruth's protection, their future and their livelihood matters to him. And it should matter to the broader Israelite community. And while we enjoy on this earth, and we often talk about it, especially in our communities, the status of being a private individual who God has redeemed, that reality goes hand in hand with our status as public citizens who are called to live where God has planted us as salt and light. How we live, friends, and how we function in the context of our communities, both church and town, matters. And as believers who are living by faith, shining like stars in a crooked and depraved generation, our transformed lives should look different from those who have not experienced this same transformation. I have a friend that says to me regularly, something has to be different. A Christian plumber is going to have different priorities and motivations that should affect the way his public public business looks compared to a plumber who has not been transformed by the power of the gospel. A Christian lawyer should handle their public cases and clients with a level of care and concern that should look different of that of a lawyer who does not know Jesus. A Christian student in a public educational setting should think differently, believe differently, and live differently than his or her classmates who have not been transformed by the power of the gospel. Will we slip up sometimes? Yes. Will we stumble? Absolutely. No doubt. That's part of what living on this earth means. We all have sinned. We all will sin and fall short of the glory of God. But as we go back to Acts chapter 4 and look at verse 33, the same governor for the early church is in effect for the church today. And that is great grace was upon them all. We live and operate in an age of grace. And here in Ruth, friends, we have a farmer, Boaz, while living in a crooked and depraved generation in the context of the book of Judges, he is demonstrating to us what it looks like to shine like a star among men. And in verse 3, he jumps right into the fray. Look at what he says. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling this parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And he's calling this redeemer to account. He's saying, listen, if you're going to redeem this land, do it right now in the presence of these elders. This is the place to do it. If you're going to do it, do it. But if not, tell me here in the presence of these elders, because I, I'm the next guy up. And quite honestly, Boaz was looking forward to the opportunity to step in as the redeemer. 
Now, this is a pretty big deal. The stranger has just been called into this public assembly. He's been offered this opportunity to purchase land, and he doesn't even bat an eye, does he? At the end of verse 4, what does he say right away? I will redeem it. I'll do it. Okay. But what does Boaz do? He goes on to clarify what this commitment actually entailed, and it's important. Because he's going to clarify in the presence of the elders who are there as a matter of accountability what this commitment was going to look like for the Redeemer. His wording is direct. It's exact. There's more than just a track of land that's at stake here. Look at verse 5. Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Doesn't stop there. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. There's a reason that this man's name is never mentioned in the text. When confronted with these realities... The realities that followed the commitment and what it was going to look like. And seeing that there was no prospect towards his own future expansion of wealth. This redemption no longer looked good to him. In other words, as long as there was something in it for him, then buying this land was going to serve both his personal ambitions while also caring for a need within the community. But take away the potential for future personal gain and the impact on the broader community is no longer important. Look at the words in verse 6. I cannot redeem it for myself. Lest I impair my own inheritance. We begin to see what kind of sacrifice this meant for the kinsman redeemer. A man who himself, this man perhaps had his own wife and his own children. Were he to buy this land from Naomi and marry Ruth, and he and Ruth were to have a son, then it would be Ruth's son who would gain the inheritance of the land. Naomi's heir kept the legal right to the land. And along with this, what would it look like to this man's family and friends were he to do this and have to take for himself an immigrant Moabite widow as a wife? For the unnamed redeemer, his reputation, the risk involved, the personal cost, the sacrifice required for redemption were far too much for him to consider. And friends, think about what he gave up. To be named in the line of our Messiah, of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We are uncertain as to whether Boaz or this unnamed relative was first to take off his sandal. But in the presence of the witnesses that had gathered, this act of removing one's sandal served as the final answer. In the uh, Israelite culture, the sandal was kind of like the gavel 
in the court of law today. When the judge hits that gavel, the matter's finished, it's been adjudicated, we move on. When it came to the transfer of land, the transfer or exchange of a sandal was like the gavel, it was finished. But what is interesting is that there were consequences in the law for a man who denied his obligation as a redeemer. If you go back to the Leverite marriage laws, and you can read them at some point this week in your personal study in Deuteronomy chapter 25, were a man to turn down his duty to step in and do this, there were consequences. And we don't see any of those things enacted in the text here today. We just don't know. Regardless of what may or may not have happened to the stranger, the window is now open for Boaz to purchase Naomi's land and take Ruth as his wife. We have said this before as we've studied this book, that Boaz is a wonderful example of what it might look like to love, live, and lead for God's glory. And we say that because Boaz is demonstrating what is the greatest ideal of leadership. And that is servant leadership. It's the example that's been demonstrated and modeled by Christ in the New Testament. And it's the example that's being demonstrated and modeled by Boaz in this text. He is serving Naomi. He is serving his Lord. He is serving his community by stepping to the plate and fulfilling this role, this duty, this opportunity as kinsman, redeemer. Later on, friends, Jesus, who is the true and greater Boaz, demonstrates the same form of sacrificial servant leadership as he lays down his life for us. And what Boaz has demonstrated in his redemption of Naomi and Ruth is selfless, it's right, and it's just. It's selfless in that He is going to purchase all that is Naomi's, yet he is going to give up any right to future profit or inheritance from the land to the son that would be born of Ruth's. It's his, not Boaz's land. It is right in that he is the next redeemer in line. He does the right or the righteous act, and he fulfills the Leverite marriage laws in taking Ruth as his wife, and performing his duties as a husband to her. And finally, friends, his behavior is just. Justice is at stake here in the narrative of Ruth. The law that God gives was to serve the people. The law was a gift that was sowed in love. It had provisions within it to protect the poorest and most vulnerable within the Israelite community. Many provisions in the law were aimed directly at people in the situation that Naomi and Ruth were in. Immigrants and widows. And as we said at the beginning, in a place where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel, would the law work? Could justice be done? Would justice be done so that, as Boaz says at the end of verse 10, look, there's a reason at the end of verse 10 that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Book of Judges, little justice. Book of Ruth, beautiful justice. 
the law working exactly how God had intended to protect, to preserve, and to provide for the powerless and oppressed within the Israelite community. Ultimately, in Boaz's redemption of Naomi, we see on display some of the highest ideals related to biblical justice. When we consider an image that may help us illustrate the concept of biblical justice, the picture of a tree comes to mind. And here we see the roots of justice. When we consider justice from a biblical perspective, the roots of justice are grounded in the character of our good and loving creator who is God. And friends, foundations are important. The tree does not exist without its roots. We cannot understand justice apart from the character of God, which is on full display in the opening chapter of the Bible. You go to Genesis 1, it's historical narrative, by the way. It's supposed to be interpreted literally, not figuratively. If there's a picture of, of a creator king who is dressing his creation to fit his desire. All that God creates in Genesis 1 is good because he is good. And at the beginning, that which is formless and empty is formed and filled to fit into a perfect and right relationship with its creator. What is the crown jewel of his creation in chapter 1? It is man. Who he forms in his own image. And he calls what? Very good. And after God makes man. He then guides and instructs man. He doesn't just leave him by himself. Without instructions. Love is motivating what he is doing. In chapter 1 of Genesis. And so he guides and directs man. On how he might relate rightly to him. But also how he can relate rightly to the creation. Where he has been planted. But what do we know friends? Genesis 3. It's all downhill from there right? Man fails. He falls. But in man's failure. The trunk of biblical justice is seen in restoration. God could have destroyed Adam and Eve. Absolutely. He could have done it. The injustice in Adam, of Adam and Eve's sin was covered by garments that God forms and clothes them with. And though he casts them out of the garden, he allows them to live and to bear fruit. Adam and Eve's relationship with God is restored. It's not the same as it was before the fall. From the fall of man to the end of eternity, a person will only find themselves in a just and right relationship with God if that person lives by faith. Faith in Christ alone. Thus we come to find the highest ideal of biblical justice is found in the restoring of broken relationships. Biblical justice is primarily restorative. Friends, we are born in sin. That's the reality for every one of us who have gathered here online at home or in the building today. Our relationship with God is broken. Yet as God loves us first, while we are dead in our trespasses and sins, 
and his spirit regenerates us from within, we recognize our problem with sin and our need for a savior. And by God's power, we confess and we repent and we turn to God. And Jesus declares us as just and his righteousness becomes ours. And we are restored into a right relationship with God. What about the person who does not live by faith and never comes to a knowledge of God through Jesus? Well, if we love that person, we should pray for him because the greatest thing that could happen to them is that the Lord would draw them to himself and save them. But that person, if they never come to a knowledge of Jesus, will rightly relate to God in their separation from God eternally. Thus God is still just and righteous even in his wrath. That is the beauty of who God is. Giving to each person exactly what they are due according to their faith. Not their works. Or lack thereof. And this restorative nature of justice isn't just between people and God, but also in how people relate to one another. Friends, if it's real, if it's worked in our relationship with God, if we've been restored unto God because of the power of Jesus Christ at work in our lives, then we should be restored in relationships that we have here on earth that may be broken or in need of reconciliation. The Bible tells us we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. So it's not just between people and God, but people and people and how we relate to each other. As well, when we sin against one another, there's to be acknowledgement of that sin. There's to be an asking of forgiveness, a reconciliation and restoration between the two parties involved. And these are not the only elements of biblical justice. Certainly there are others. The character of God it's rooted in. The trunk is seen in restoration. Certainly flowing from the trunk, there are branches related to biblical justice that include a retributive branch. We know that because Adam and Eve sinned, that their sins needed to be accounted for. And thus the earth was cursed, and they were cursed and sent from the garden. And Romans tells us that the wages of our sin is what? Death. There is a penalty-paying branch to injustice. It's called the retributive branch. And for those of us who sit here today are in a right relationship with God, we can give thanks to Jesus Christ because he has paid the penalty of our sin. And there's also a distributive branch that each person is given what is rightfully due or owed to them. We see an element of that in the narrative of Ruth. Naomi's in need of a redeemer. God rightfully and justfully distributes a redeemer to her in Boaz. We also see it at work in the early church. You remember the example of the early church. As the widows had need, there was concern in making sure that the widows and orphans of the church were cared for in the daily distributions. And then finally, there is administrative or procedural branch to biblical justice. And we see this at the beginning of our narrative today when Boaz calls the stranger and the ten elders to come to the gate. These were procedures and processes. Some of us who aren't into law look at these things and find them to be rather boring. But they were necessary. And they were necessary because they were in place to protect the citizens governed 
by the law that God had given. An example is, is multiple witnesses that we see in the text today. All illustrations fall short, friends, at some level. But as we consider the image of a tree, when thinking of biblical justice, we see all parts of the tree are connected. They're all interrelated. The roots give the tree life and growth. The trunk gives the tree strength. The branches hold out the beauty and the diversity of the tree for the world to see. And for Naomi, in our text, there's need for a redeemer. For Ruth, there's need for a husband. And now Boaz, in the presence of the elders and the others who had gathered, held the power to draw Naomi back into a right relationship with her people and draw Ruth, the Moabite, into a right relationship with both himself and the people of Israel. And as he expresses at the beginning of verse 9, you are witnesses this day. So does he repeat it to the elders at the end of verse 10, leaving no doubt that Naomi's redemption had come. And Ruth was soon to find her rest in the house of Boaz. Friends, this is a true, what we see in the book of Ruth is a true and beautiful picture of mercy, of love, of servant leadership, of sacrifice, of justice. And we will find in our lives that these concepts often walk together and go together hand in hand. The first redeemer looked away, didn't he? The prospect was too much for him to consider. It was going to cost him too much. And so he looked away. The true Redeemer, though, found us dead in our trespasses and sins. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for us, despising the shame, enduring hostility that we might gain his righteousness and not grow weary or faint-hearted as we love Live and lead for God's glory in the places that he has planted us. The redemption of Noah, of Naomi, friends, is a vignette of the redemption that we have received in Christ Jesus. A beautiful picture of that redemption. And isn't it amazing that what follows in our text, following this redemption, is actually praise, celebration, a blessing... The scene we get here in the final two verses is relative to the joy of a bride and a groom at the recessional after the officiate has announced them as husband and wife and they're ready to celebrate their new relational reality with the public. Verse 11 informs us that at this point, others have gathered at the gate along with the elders and they affirm that indeed there are witnesses to Boaz's sacrificial act of redemption and together they pronounce a blessing on Boaz first, then on his house or his line. And isn't it beautiful for Ruth, the blessing calls her, the one who was a foreign immigrant, she now finds her identity along with others of the Israelite faith, like Rachel and Leah and Tamar. It is a blessing that her progeny would be both great in number and in influence. It's a blessing that's deeply grounded in the origins of the Jewish faith, moving us all the way back and again into the narrative of Genesis. And finally, it is a blessing that reminds us of the covenant faithfulness of God. The God who spoke to Abraham, 
saying your reward. You remember in Genesis 15, he took Abraham. He said, your reward shall be very great. And he takes him out and he asks him to fix his gaze on the heavens. And he tells him to number the stars. And you remember, he brings him outside and says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And we may be concerned as we open the book of Ruth coming out of the book of Judges. Is God going to keep his promises? Because the people are going crazy and doing whatever they want. Whatever looks right to them. How is God going to preserve and protect his people in this terrible context? And we find that God is faithful over and over and over again in this beautiful story of redemption. God is keeping his promises, proving his faithfulness to us. The one who was once bitter, you remember Naomi? She's been redeemed. Her fortunes have been reversed. Her countenance transformed. And for each of us in this room who've experienced the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, our fortunes were reversed as he found us dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. And he made us alive together with him. Our countenance is changed. We had no joy. Now we are defined as a people of joy. We had no hope. Now we can come to be defined as a people with great hope. Because of Jesus. And next week we will see God further fulfilling his covenant promises as a son is born, a child is given, a child from whose line would come one who would carry the government on his shoulders as King David, the king whose throne would be established forever, the throne on which our Messiah would sit, the one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace.